0: Did communism smash the patriarchy? Wherever they ruled, communists engineered cultural change by dethroning religious authorities, educating women and harnessing them as workhorses. Today, ex-communist countries lead the world for gender parity in education, employment and management roles. Yet it is my contention that the status of women would have been even higher without communism. To the extent that communism suffocated civil society, it choked off strong independent women's movements and stifled further progress for women that did take place in Western societies. One major exception is tribalised or Muslim societies – where female emancipation either would have been severely delayed or never would have happened without communism. Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, communism may be the world's greatest top-down intervention for female economic empowerment. Female employment is high in post-communist countries, as is gender parity and senior management. Over 40% of Russia's published economists and business leaders are women. Nearly half the world's self-made female billionaires are Chinese. In East Asia, women who grew up under communism are especially competitive, as suggested by natural and lab experiments. Vietnam, Georgia, China and Mongolia have the world's smallest gender gaps in competitive chess, which in the rest of the world is a male preserve. Now... Socialist central planners needed women because five-year plans typically set high production targets and in order to supplement their low wages, women were enticed with generous maternity leave and childcare. The workbook was their passport to apartments, holidays and even medical care, full citizenship. Therefore, employment diminished reliance on husbands, not only financially but in terms of state benefits. But, if communism was so egalitarian when it came to employment, education, and state benefits, how come they're so sexist? In world value surveys, men in post-communist societies give much more patriarchal answers than men in never-communist societies when asked questions like, are men better political leaders, are boys more entitled to education, and should scarce jobs be reserved for men? When asked what he thought about the Soviet ideology of gender, 63-year-old scientist, Zakhar, explained it didn't work. This ideology existed on the formal level, but in reality, what people did and thought, it did not have anything to do with this ideology. Nobody believed that women were equal. A woman had to be a housekeeper. On the other hand, in Soviet Russia, one salary is simply not enough. My wife gave birth and relatively quickly went back to work as soon as she could. Really, purely for financial reasons, end quote. But, although post-communist countries are generally more patriarchal than comparable peers, there is a curious heterogeneity. Within Central Asia, formerly communist countries are now the most gender-equal amongst Muslim-majority countries. Why might the exact same intervention, communism, advance women's status in some places, but not others? I have a two-part theory. Part one. In places with strong potential for feminist activism, communism suppressed women's status. So, economic empowerment, to put in air quotes, is no guard against male violence or misogyny. A woman may still be abused at home, harassed on city streets, and locked out of politics. Rather than battle it out, women reluctantly poover men's mess. If victims cannot secure accountability, abuse persists with impunity. Despondency deters resistance, inhibiting social change. Feminist activism challenges patriarchal privileges. In secular democracies, it can spread like wildfire, igniting dissent and deviation. Urbanization and untrammeled media are like tinder to the flame. Strolling down the streets of Buenos Aires, one realizes widespread contention. Political graffiti and viral hashtags denounce maquista violence. Ni una menos and Argentinian activists deck their wrists, necks and backpacks with the green handkerchief, symbolising women's righteous resistance. As thousands of women demonstrate for gender parity in politics, they foster feminist consciousness. Their peers come to see inequalities as unfair and problematic. When organisations secure reforms, citizens learn that they can overturn unfair laws and practices through relentless mobilisation. Sparks fly. Public dissent enables ideas to spread across peer groups. Inspired by advocates in the media, teenagers message their friends, learning of more egalitarian egalitarian alternatives, others come to expect and demand better. Strong, independent women's movements, advance women's status, securing protection against sexist violence. Now... Decades of dictatorships may have stunted associational networks. Civil society membership is systematically lower in post-communist countries. Anti-democratic attitudes are highest amongst those who lived under communism. Stalin silenced all talk of sexuality, which thereafter remained taboo. In in Russia, Hungary, Poland, Serbia and China, rulers have entrenched authoritarianism. Women's movements are weak, unorganised, despondent. here's the important bit. Given the costs of speaking out, resistance is rare. Feminism remains the purview of extremists like pussy riots and femen, with whom Russia's 95 million Orthodox Christians hardly identify. And priests and politicians reinforce these stereotypes. They tar feminists as ugly, aggressive, man-hating lesbians. The term is so toxic, it's even shunned by women's organisations. Like a powerful fire hose upon little fires, this drowns feminist consciousness. Now, to understand how weak feminist movements impede further progress, let's review some country-specific experiences. Starting with Cuba. Castro heralded gender equality as the revolution within the revolution. The Cuban government gave women entitlements to education, employment, abortion, maternity leave, daycare centres and modern domestic appliances. But in reality, provisions were shoddy and scarce. Havana's leaders silenced dissent. Let me quote. It was clear that behind all the arguments was basically a McKee's line of thinking. We big, strong men understand how politics works and must save you from temptation. End quote. And that political repression, closing down women's organizations, inhibited shared recognition of gender inequalities. Another quote I do not think there is even a feminist consciousness at a societal level. You may find it in small groups of women who are friends. You could find it in groups of men who are aware of women's issues and acknowledge them. But at a very disconnected and scattered level, it is very difficult in a country where everything is designed to come from men. End quote. <clears throat> Elsewhere in Latin America and the Caribbean, women's movements have organized huge rallies against gender-based violence. Crowds physically demonstrate Zero tolerance of abuse and support for survivors. Cuba does not even have gender-based violence legislation. Lacking confidence in justice, victims seldom seek help from government. Me too. Passed without much of a whimper. There was one lone woman who accused a popular musician of abuse, but she was viciously attacked. In China and Russia, crackdowns have exacerbated self-censorship. MeToo activists were threatened with violence. Powerful men were protected. Educated young women shared their outrage on Weibo and WeChat, but were WeChat sorry? But were soon silenced. China's landmark sexual harassment case has just been thrown out of court. In the absence of allies, many Chinese women see sexual harassment as inevitable. There is little impetus for reform. Russian police disregard victims, who in turn distrust the police. Let me quote, come, come see us after he's killed you. It's a sort of caricature, but it's not far off. In 2017, Russian legislators actually decriminalised domestic battery. Half of all married women have been beaten by their husbands. Yet many feel fatalistic. Presuming that nothing can be done to mitigate pervasive alcoholism and abuse. However, whatever their professional successes, which are many, as I was saying earlier, Eastern European women are often evaluated on their curves and reminded to bear children. Sexism is rampant, but unchallenged or seldom challenged. So, Russian husbands continue to shirk housework. As Svetlana tearfully explained, my mum works, goes to the market, washes, cleans up, cooks. All that's up to her. And he comes home, lies on the sofa and watches the television. On top of that, he doesn't let her watch the television. He chooses which channel to watch. Is that right? In addition, he wears out on nerves with his drinking. End quote. A real Russian man. Music is tough, strong and patriotic. Living in the shadow of organised crime. Working class, men have learnt to project a brutal dominance. Street youths upload videos of their fights, impressing peers with aggressive physical prowess. Older men forge ties, boozing and barbecuing. That fraternal capital is the lifeblood of successful commerce for recovering debts, protecting property, settling disputes, obtaining tax exemptions and official permissions, perhaps even damaging competitors. To the extent that recent privatization fueled a violent entrepreneurship, it may have exacerbated masculine bravado, intimate partner violence, and unequal caregiving. In China, the government has maintained a monopoly of violence, rule of law, and public trust. Men needn't present as thuggish, but progress towards gender equality is still held back through the suppression of civil society. Taiwan and South Korea demonstrate what women can achieve when economic development is combined with democratization and feminist activism. As Taiwanese women amassed wealth, status and networks, they organized politically. Feminist lobbying secured gender quotas. Twice elected president now presides over a legislature that is 42% female. With strong female representation, the government of Taiwan has strongly entrenched protections for women's rights, criminalizing sexual harassment. In South Korea, independent civil society and religious groups were never fully repressed under the military dictatorship. Anti-government coalitions of workers, students, priests, intellectuals and farmers gained strength over the 1970s and 80s. South Koreans have now consolidated democratisation, on par with the UK, according to the latest VDEM, Liberal Democracy Index. South Korea's strong civil society laid the foundations for today's feminist activism. 340 women's organisations, labour unions and NGOs launched Citizens Action with Me Too and campaigned for a campaign with you recognizing their collective strength and successes women increasingly agitate for accountability in 2018 20,000 women marched against spy cams the spy cams which are upskirt and hidden cameras in loose, and revenge porn which is then circulated online this led to more government attention a ministerial committee and more police investigations China lags behind with the weakest protections against gender-based violence in East Asia. So, in sum, in the absence of feminist activism, post-communist women are working longer hours but without commensurate rights and recognition. The world's greatest intervention for women's economic empowerment has not secured political power and protection. Now we come to the conundrum Why was Central Asia different? Why did communism actually advance gender equality in Central Asia? Here is my argument. Central Asia had low potential for feminist activism because strong patrilineal clans restricted women's mobility in the public sphere. By propelling women into the workforce, communism ended centuries of female seclusion. So let me explain. Communism stunted women's representation and protection to the extent that it suffocated collective organising. But this was less of a setback in Central Asia where the patrilineal trap created a prior constraint to feminist activism. When the Stan countries converted to Islam, women gained inheritance and property rights. Cousin marriage ensured that wealth remained in the family. As the Uzbeks say at weddings, we have given our daughter away, not to strangers, but to our own. Close-knit clans share honour collectively. A daughter's impropriety would stain her entire lineage. This motivated close surveillance. In Uzbek and Tajik towns where strangers mingled, women were seldom seen. Nomads in the mountain villages needed women's fieldwork, so were less restrictive, but no less patriarchal. The only public spaces Zeri Muslim women frequented were holy holy shrines, public baths and the mosque. Bakru City Council opened two schools for Muslim girls, but they were continually harassed in the early 20th century. The world is a man's house, said the Turkmen, while the house is a woman's world. Given the loss of honour incurred from unilaterally deviating from this norm of female seclusion, all families were caught in this negative feedback loop in which women's employment remained exceptional. With upper bounds on their earnings, daughters were disappointing. Let me give a couple of traditional sayings. You had better given birth to a stone At least it would have been useful to repair the wall. End quote. Thirteen was a common age of marriage in Fergana Valley. Matches and bride prices were agreed by fathers. Uh, Two more traditional sayings. Just as a cow does not choose the water, she drinks, so does a woman not choose her husband. Another saying, a girl is like a sack of nuts. She can be bought and sold. So... If a woman was not well treated, though of course she might have been, there was little escape. Under the Soviets, Central Asia was brutally transformed. Top-down directives were clear. Regardless of the human cost, local cadders would be rewarded for delivering the plan. They coerced Kazakh nomads onto collective farms. Peasants resisted, slaughtering cattle, refusing to farm for the state... Over a million Kazakhs died from disease and starvation, along with 90% of herd animals. In a bid to destroy Islam, liberate, liberate women and create a surrogate proletariat, the Soviets championed mass unveiling in 1927. Islamic scholars denounced these unveiled women as akin to prostitutes committing blasphemy against Islam. And they threatened to alienate their male kin. Mob violence ensued. Two thousand Uzbek women were murdered. The rest hastily revealed. To decapitate resistance, Stalin demolished mosques, madrasas, executing dissidents, and that sharply contrasted with Pakistan and Egypt and other Muslim majority countries, where more insecure leaders strengthened their legitimacy by placating clerics. Soviet authorities also heavily invested in compulsory secular co-education. Unlike typically gender-segregated Arab classrooms, Central Asians studied side by side. In preparation for the public sphere, girls were strongly encouraged to partake in performing arts and competitive team sports. Muslim headscarves were prohibited in schools. Let me give a couple of quotes from a Kazakh journalist. As young girls, we never felt any different from the boys in our class. Like other girls, I had clear ideas of what I wanted to do, and the boys would joke about how ambitious we were. It's another quote from Pusta, an ophthalmologist from Baku, who was born in 1921. My, never, my mother never put down her chador. She remained illiterate. But we ourselves felt conscientious about our work. In those days, it was regarded as usual that whether you are a boy or a girl, once you finish school, you would gain some training and have a career. From 1931 to 1932, all the schools became co-educational. We met with boys at lessons, after-school clubs, in the communal la- yards. Everywhere, we did things together. Later, when we were at university or at work, if our male friends came to the house, our mother may hide from them. But we considered that amusing. So that was Pusta, the ophthalmologist, born in 1921. The Soviets tripled capital investment in Central Asia with targets for productivity and female employees. Thermal power stations, hydroelectric dams and railroads accelerated industrialization. Cotton from collectivised farms could now be processed in textile factories. Between 1925 and 1939, Uzbekistan's female workforce leapt from 9 to 39%. To maximise female employment, the Soviets also established preschools, building over 2,000 in Uzbekistan by 1940. Women were now graduating as doctors, lawyers and scientists. Women's productivity and business leadership were celebrated in novels, magazines and Soviet ceremonies. Uzbekistan's first female train driver and parachutist was front page news. Jabali wrote in 1931, this was a real revolution in life, in customs, in the minds of people. Zurakhan Kaina zarova a beach grower, wrote, I will be 70 soon. I know a thing or two about the deprived Kyrgyz women's civil rights before the revolution. I have gone through that humiliation. It was disgusting. When I was a 15-year-old girl, I was sold in marriage to a rich old man. However, my life has been changed. I have received the most supreme award on earth, Lenin's Order, and a gold medal of the Hero of Socialist Labour. I've been serving my country as deputy of the Supreme Soviet of the USSR for 17 years. Here's a former factory director from Uzbekistan. She says, if I could identify an important moment when women made their mark as workers in heavy industry, it was during the war period. Once they had experienced the economic benefits of engaging in work, which was considered unsuitable for women, there was no turning back young women were actively choosing to enter technical training over professional academic study in order to enter highly paid blue-collar employment. This is a reminder. In, uh, in the USSR, you could earn a higher wage through blue-collar labor than through uh, white-collar, white-collar jobs um, due to biases in the work point system. It's another line from a secondary school teacher in Tajikistan. I felt I was the luckiest girl in the whole world. My great-grandmother was a slave, shut up in her house. My mother was illiterate. She had 13 children and looked old her whole life. For me, the past was dark and horrible. And whatever anyone says about the Soviet Union, that is how it was for me. So, com- end quote, so communism overcame the patrilineal trap by butchering Religious authorities, investing in secular education, championing women's participation in public life and drafting their labor. Once female employment became widespread and economically advantageous, it garnered widespread acceptance. The fall of the USSR resulted in mass unemployment, corruption, economic stress, domestic violence, a revival of patrilocal kinship, and the affirmation of Islamic traditions. Desperate to escape abuse, some women have burnt themselves to death. So inequalities certainly persist in post-Soviet Central Asia. But what is the counterfactual? In Afghanistan, after 160,000 local casualties, the Taliban has appointed an all-male cabinet, fired female lecturers, and only invited boys back to high school. Fearing crackdowns, Kabulis have panic-bought niqabs and removed images of women from their storefronts. Women are disappearing from public space, as was always true of the vast rural majority. Neighboring Pakistan is the global epicenter of honour killings. The vast majority of women remain surveilled and secluded. Unlike every other garment industry in the world, Pakistan's factory floors are overwhelmingly male. Why is this? Rumours of impropriety jeopardise family honour, triggering violent reprisals. Let me quote from Shahista, a 26-year-old home worker. No, nobody of our village, of our neighborhood, goes to the factory. Two girls used to, but they quit because of household problems. The neighbors used to taunt us and our father. He was looked down on because of it. So, female employment is systematically higher. If you look at uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, the female employment rate is much, much, much lower than what it is in post-Soviet Central Asia. So, just last month, a young woman. Uh, in Pakistan, went to a park in metropolitan Lahore to record a TikTok video for Independence Day. This incited mob violence. An angry crowd of 400 men mauled, groped, slapped, stripped, and passed her between them. Let me quote from the survivor. The crowd pulled me from all sides to such an extent that my clothes were torn. I was hurled in the air. They assaulted me brutally. Across the entire region, powerful religious authorities have consistently opposed attempts to reform discriminatory family laws. Fear of antagonizing clerics, risking angry mobs and jeopardizing political authority has sapped Pakistan's rulers' drive for reform. Orthodox authoritarian clerics in Iran's Guardian Council have consistently vetoed bills on women's rights. Iranian feminists have fought back against discriminatory laws, uh, orchestrating you know, a 1 million signatures campaign, but with state harassment and intimidation, they soon demobilized. Sharia law remains overwhelmingly popular in Afghanistan and Pakistan, 80-99% of people support it. But in majority Muslim Central Asia, support is very low, Azerbaijan 8%. Kazakhstan, 10%. Highest in Kyrgyzstan, 35%. So, so in Central Asia, support for Sharia law is very, very low. And that is thanks to communism. So, what are the implications of all this? What does this tell us? So, communism delivered almost everything that feminists want. Daycare, maternity leave, abortion, full employment, near gender parity in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And yet, patriarchal privileges remain remarkably entrenched. What on earth went wrong? And what does this failure reveal about the real drivers of gender equality? I suggest these comparisons with non-communist peers teach us three fundamental facts about gender. First, Weak institutions and criminal violence exacerbate displays of masculine bravado. Second, sustained feminist activism and consciousness galvanize recognition of women's equal status, political representation, and protection from violence. Third, in clannish societies, female seclusion is so cardinal to male honor that it only ended with brutal totalitarianism. If you listened all the way, thank you so much. This is Rocking Our Prize, and I'm Dr. Alice Evans. Take care.